Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Word of Life Church in person and online. Uh, Everything's moving toward Christmas. And I think it's the 27th year that Word of Life will be doing our annual Christmas Eve service. I assume most all of you have been at that. It's by far, by far the biggest thing we do every year. We fill up this place three times. So it's, it's become a, not just a word of life tradition, it's a St. Joseph tradition. People must just sit around and go, let's go out to word of life and see those camels. I think that's what they do. But they come and they hear the Christmas story, that is, they hear the gospel. Yeah, and we do it with, you know, the live camels and the live nativity and all that, and it's a lot of fun. It's an adventure every year. <laughs> that's part of it. But I just want you to know that... Um, you know, if you're new here and you haven't, and oh, it'll be online, by the way. For years, we didn't do it online, but things have changed. And so, yes, it will also be online. It's 4, 6, 8 p.m. We got three one-hour candlelight communion services on Christmas Eve, 4, 6, 8 p.m. And if you would like to serve, if you, if you would like to volunteer, that'd be awesome. You can sign up online or in the foyer after the service. And with three services, you know, you can attend one and serve in one. So I want you to be aware of that coming up. All right, during Advent, I am preaching on the anticipated Christ. And we are emphasizing looking at the prophets and how these ancient Hebrew prophets anticipated the coming of Messiah, that is, the Christ. On the second Sunday of Advent, my sermon is, Here is your God. When Isaiah penned his Rivers in the Desert poem, Judah was in a bad way. This is the reading you've just heard from Isaiah chapter 35. I would call it Isaiah's Rivers in the Desert poem. And when he wrote that poem, Israel or Judah, to be more specific, was in a bad way. Internally, Judah was just filled with corruption, corrupt government, corrupt leaders. Externally, they were under threat of foreign invasion. I mean, that's just, you know, that's a historical context, but I want you to try to feel it a little bit, at, at least a little bit. Feel like what it was to be just to be the average person living in Judah at this time. When your, your government is terribly corrupt, they're all in it for themselves. There's no real commitment to the general well-being, the flourishing of human society. The rich are just getting richer and the powerful are just becoming more powerful and no one seems to care about those that are left behind. And worse yet, you are under threat of imminent invasion from a superpower that you know good and well your nation has no capability of actually resisting. And the invasion will mean death. It'll mean slavery. It'll mean exile. And so they're under that kind of pressure. 
And that's when Isaiah brings forth this poem. Because he, he's, a, he's a prophet, but the prophets exercise their prophetic office primarily by writing poems. And you think, well, what good is that? Well, here we are still studying them 26 centuries later. Yeah. And so Isaiah is a prophet and he's a poet and he's a man of audacious hope. And when everyone else is afraid, he's not afraid. When everyone else is despairing, he is not despairing. Because when people are overwhelmed with fear, what they need most is a prophetic word of hope. And so Isaiah's prophecy is simple. I mean, he does it with the flourish of a poet. But what he's saying is, God will come. God will come. God will come. And when God comes, everything's going to change. Isaiah prophesies that the day will come when it will be said, here is your God. And when it can be proclaimed, here is your God, well, then, of course, everything changes. And the picture that Isaiah gives of God's arrival and thus salvation on the scene is a picture of rivers in the desert after a long and cruel drought. Okay, everything's barren, everything's dry, everything's dead, and then everything changes. And there's rivers in the desert, and the barren badlands are transformed into a verdant garden as the desert blossoms. Isaiah saying, that's going to be your life. I know, I know you're in the badlands now, but God's coming. And when God comes, there's going to be rivers in the desert, and the badlands are going to blossom. Then the image switches from the environment being healed to people being healed. And Isaiah says, well, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the dumb will speak, and the lame will leap like a deer. He goes on and he concludes the poem by saying, this salvation is going to be so extent, so present, so powerful, so transformative that sorrow and sighing will flee away. What a great line. Sorrow and sign will just flee away. Sign, there, there won't be any more. <sighs> Come on. How many of you, sometimes your life is. <sighs> he said, that'll even be gone. There'll be no more. <sighs> Sorrow and sign will flee away. Now, this week, as I recited Isaiah's river in the desert poem every morning, there was a particular passage that evoked a deep resonance in my spirit. I feel like it's a word for some of you right now. Will you dare to believe it? That this might be a word for you. Okay, Isaiah 35, verses 3 and 4. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. He will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense. He will come and save you. Yeah, that's what, that's what stood out to me. That's what seemed to leap within me every time I recited that passage in prayer. Uh, that's from the New Revised Standard Version translation. Uh, that's my default translation that I use most often but I want to give it to you again in the way you just heard it we just we just heard it a moment ago 
But I want to give it to you in the message translation because this is the translation of poetry by a poet. Eugene Peterson, he was a poet. And I I love the message Bible from Genesis to Revelation, but it shines in the book of Psalms because Eugene himself was a poet. And he seems to understand the nature of poetry in the Psalms. And this, this is a Psalm. I mean, it's, it's, <clears throat> it's the prophets, but it's, it's a poem. And so that passage in the message reads like this. Energize the limp hands. Strengthen the rubbery knees. Tell the fearful souls, courage. Take heart. God is here, right here. On his way to put things right and redress all wrongs. He's on his way. He'll save you. Well, that's what we need. We need God to be on the scene. We need God to show up. And when God arrives on the scene, when God shows up, he'll set all things right. He'll redress all wrongs. And on that day, it will be said, here is your God. And everything will be all right. But for now, we wait. Isn't that the truth? Advent is about learning how to wait for God. In our high-tech, high-speed, high-stress age, we are not very good at waiting You get in that drive-up window, and you're just stuck there. I mean, how much Taco Bell can one person order? What's going on here? Mm-hmm. And our high-speed, high-tech, high-tech, high-stress age, we're not very good at waiting because it feels too much like doing nothing. It's all we don't like being stuck in the drive-up. I'm not doing nothing. I'm just sitting here. But waiting on God is not doing nothing. Waiting on your Taco Bell might be doing nothing. I don't know. But waiting on God is not doing nothing. As we wait, we slowly become contemplative enough to discern what God is doing. As we wait on God. Unless we intentionally cultivate some contemplative slowness in our soul, it doesn't matter if God acts because we'll most likely fail to recognize what God is doing when he does it. We can almost say, we can almost say that God never arrives until we wait. God acts when we wait. This is true, at least experientially so. The deeper truth, though, is that God is always acting. God is always acting because God is always loving his creation. God's love is never inactive. God's love is verb. God loves. Why is there something instead of nothing? Because God said, let there be. Why does God bother? Because God is love seeking expression. Everything comes from the love of God. There flows from the heart of God a river of fire that is unchanging, unending, immutable love. For all of creation, including you. 
God is never not doing nothing because God is always loving you. And the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are constantly inviting us into their house of love. A place of perfect love that casts out all fear. And God is always arriving in our world, but it takes some spiritual formation to discern it. I want to say that again. God is constantly always arriving in our world, in our life, in our times. But it takes some spiritual formation to discern it, to recognize it, to perceive it and not miss it. I'm going to go to Isaiah 43. Now, this is what we call, for you scholars out there, this is what we call second Isaiah. It's an addition to the Isaiah scroll that comes about 150 years after the first 39 chapters. But this is also a reprise on the Isaiah 35 rivers in the desert poem because it recaptures some of those themes. I just want to read one verse though from it. Isaiah 43, 19. I am about, this is, this is the Lord speaking, thus saith the Lord. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. To perceive God's new thing, God's new arrival, God's new advent, that's what advent means, you know, arrival. To perceive God's new advent, we must be capable of perceiving it. And one of the more common ways we would describe that is we must be awake. The favorite metaphor in scripture for spiritual dullness that cannot perceive what God is doing is slumber. We're we're sleeping through it. We're missing it. God is actually arriving and doing something, but we're snoozing. That's why it says in Ephesians 5, 14, Awake, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Well, actually, your waking up doesn't cause Christ to shine any more than your waking up causes the sun to shine. It's just, you know, the sun may have been up for two hours, but if your eyes are closed and the covers are over your head, you're still in the dark. <laughs> and so, so if we can wake up, We can recognize that Christ is shining and he'll shine upon us. The word today is, here is your God. Here is your God. But who perceives it? Here is your God, but who who perceives it? If we look for God... In the loud and sensational, we almost never find God there. You should learn that. The loud and the sensational, especially in the realm of religion, this is, uh, this is the domain of the religious hucksters who are hawking their own agenda most of the time. So don't necessarily buy into the idea that God is most present where certain people are shouting the loudest about God being present. God doesn't seem to often inhabit what we would call the loud and sensational. I mean, when the word became flesh, that is is the most definite arrival of God in our world, when the word became flesh. And when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, it was in quietness and obscurity. 
no louder than the cries of a newborn. When God arrived and acted in the most decisive way in history, who perceived it? I mean, people have been saying, God's going to come, God's coming, God's going to come, we're waiting on God, and then God comes. Who perceives it? Not the zealots who were loudly proclaiming the imminent arrival of Messiah and were ready to, by violence, force God's hand if they had to. They didn't perceive it. They're the ones that were saying very loudly that God is coming, Messiah is going to arrive soon, but they didn't see it. They didn't perceive it. Not the scribes and the priests who were most well-versed in the prophetic texts regarding the coming of Messiah. They, they didn't perceive it. Who perceived the arrival of the word made flesh wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger? Who perceived it? The advent of Messiah was perceived by only two groups, shepherds and magi. I find this interesting. Shepherds and magi. They have almost nothing in common. They're very different from one another. The shepherds are, are Jewish. The magi are Persian Gentiles. The shepherds are the heirs of the tradition of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Persians are most likely Zoroastrians, worshiping Mazda and the other gods of that religion. The shepherds are very simple people, living their agrarian life, very simple. The Magi, they are an educated elite. They are the most educated people in the Persian society. The shepherds are poor. It's among the poorest class, the shepherd class within ancient Israel. The Magi are rich, thus with their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The shepherds are very near to where the event happens. They're just outside of Bethlehem in the fields. The Magi are more than a thousand miles away. But they have one thing in common. The one thing that the shepherds and the Magi have in common is they both kept vigil through the night. Of the shepherds, we're told. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And what did the Magi say? Where is he? that is born king of the Jews. For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Well, you read the portents of the stars, not by day, but by night. And so, while the rest of the world is slumbering, the shepherds and the magi are awake. They're holding vigil. They're staying awake when everybody else is asleep and they're the ones that see the star. They're the ones that hear the angelic announcement. They're the first to know, here is your God. Advent, the season we're in right now, occurs during the darkest season right now. The longest nights of the year are upon us. So we're in a season of prevailing darkness. 
And Advent is a season for us to keep vigil so that we can perceive, here is your God. During Advent, these days, these four weeks that are leading up to Christmas, sit with Jesus. Ask him to help you perceive the new thing that he is doing. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Tell Jesus, I'm not sure I do. I'm not sure, Jesus. I don't want to miss it. Ask Jesus, where are you arriving with newness in my life? Lord, you said you're doing a new thing. And then you ask, do I perceive it? I'm not sure I do. So I, I, I'm just going to sit with you a little bit, Jesus. Just sit with you. Doesn't have to be at night. We're working with the metaphor here. It might be. If that's the best time for you to be quiet. But you sit and you say, I'm not going to be in a hurry. I'm going to wait on you, Lord. I'm giving you this time. I'm waiting on you now, Lord. Help me to perceive where you are arriving with newness in my life. Where you're about to do a new thing. Help me to perceive it that I might cooperate with it. Let me talk to those of you who are in a hard time in one way or another. And there's all kinds of ways to have hard times. But you're in a hard time in one way or another right now. I mean, if you're not too self-conscious, you know, just, just, let me, just give me a little wave. Yeah, that was a big wave back there. All right. Somebody's like, yeah, totally me. Well, the first thing I want to say is don't be afraid. God is with you. God is for you. Don't future trip and begin to imagine the worst of scenarios. God is with you. God is for you. God will save you. You're going to get through this because God is the one that helps you. So this is going to become a testimony at some point. And you'll be able to look back and say, I was going through that, time, but God was with me. God got me through it. Okay, so I want you to hold on to that. But the other thing I want to share with you is something from my own experience. Now, during the hardest times of my life, I've had to wait for God to show up and do something. You know about that, right? I mean, th things are going bad. Things are not right. Things are wrong. Things are anxious and anxiety-inducing and all that. And so you pray and you cry out to God. And you say, God, you need to show up. God, you need to save me. God, you need to help me. God, you, God please come. And then what do you do? You wait. You wait. And as Tom Petty sang, the waiting is the hardest part. Every day you get one more card. You take it on faith, you take it to the heart. The waiting is the hardest part. Can I get a witness? Yeah, Brother Petty, he knew that was true. The waiting is the hardest part, but you don't have any choice. You can't do anything about it. You still just have to wait. You can complain about it, but it, it doesn't change anything. So you just keep waiting. And by the way, do keep waiting. Don't lose faith. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. 
Don't start saying silly things like, I no longer believe in an interventionist God. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. You're just trying to console yourself that it hadn't happened fast enough. I think, I, think, I think I do hold to the theology that God is never late, but I will also hold to a theology that he is very last minute. <laughs> so don't lose heart. Hold on to faith. Just keep waiting. Don't stop waiting. God will show up. God will help you. God will heal you. God will not forsake you. But here's what I've learned about the waiting, besides that it's the hardest part. We already know that. The waiting is the hardest part. Yes, we know that. But I've learned another thing about it. When you are waiting for the advent of God, you are looking all around you. Because that is where you want God to show up and set things right. You know, here's your life, and then your, your life is thrown in the middle of a particular context, scenario, relationships, and jobs, and careers, and family, and just whatever else is going on. And you're right in the middle of it, and things aren't right, and so you're crying out to God and then waiting, crying out to God and then waiting. The waiting's the hardest part. You're waiting, and you're waiting for God to show up and do something out there. And make it right. Amen. That's what we're, that's what we're doing. Um, so you just keep staring at the situation, waiting for God to show up and do something about it. Yes. That's in it. You do that. I get that. I do that. But as I look back over the seasons of waiting during the hard times of my life, what I now realize is that when I thought God was doing nothing and that nothing was happening, much was happening. I didn't really know it then, but I look back and I go, oh, that's actually when almost everything was happening. Because it wasn't happening, it wasn't happening out there. It was happening right here. I kept, where are you, God? And God was hiding in plain sight. It was right there. God, when are you going to do something? God's like just really working on me. He's kind of rewiring everything, changing th th things, changing my perspective, what I really think is important. God, when are you going to show up and do something? God says, I'm working as fast as I can, Brian. I'm just, I'm really busy right here. Hold on. It's like God's got his head under the hood of my soul, you know, and he's working everything. And I'm saying, when are you going to do something? God goes, shh, I'm busy right now. What are you doing? I'm saving you, Brian. That's what I'm doing. I'm saving you right now. Do I not perceive it? I actually perceive it in retrospect. It was hard to perceive it at the time, but look by us, it's so clear. God was hiding in plain sight, hiding right inside of me and doing a deep work. God's deepest work in my life has always happened during the hardest times. Is that true, Perry? Because you kind of like, we, we tend to kind of have our hard times at the same time. Because we're together. I, I, I'm not saying I would like to go back to those times. I wouldn't. But neither can I experience them 
now like I experienced them then because I felt like God was far off. Where are you, God? Are you out in outer space somewhere? Where are you, God? I mean, how long does it take to get from heaven? Come on. And yet God was right there. He had never forsaken me. He had never abandoned me. He was doing a deep work in me that probably could not have been done any other way. I mean, I, I, you know, the, operating the operating table is a hard time. And you might not be aware of much going on because you're asleep. But things are going on. And so if, if you're in the hard time right now, I just kind of want you to dare to believe God is actually so close to me right now. He's, he's so close. He's, he's closer than my own breath. He's so close right now. I've not been forsaken. I don't see it all out there, but maybe, maybe I can be a little bit aware. Oh, God's doing something on the inside of me. When I was waiting for God to do something, God was doing something in me. So just keep waiting and know that God is arriving right now in you. Courage. Take heart. God is here, right here, on his way to put things right and redress all wrongs. He's on his way. He'll save you. Amen. Stand up with me. Yeah, that word, that word was for somebody, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Yeah, I thought so. I thought so. Amen. Hold on to that word. Just hold on to that word. Hold on to that word. And now we come to the table of grace that will sustain us for another week. And we prepare ourselves to participate in the body and blood of Christ. First, by confessing our faith. And then by confessing our sins and receiving the Lord's gracious and abundant pardon. Make this confession of faith with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, let's confess our sins together. Most merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more.
So calm you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Amen.